Hello everyone, I'm Grace Beatty and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. Step back in time with me as we learn about some of the most infamous and maligned women in history. Speaking with leading experts, I will discuss these women's backstories and the circumstances that gave them the title of Wicked. In this season of Wicked Women, I will be focusing on some well-known and some lesser-known women in history who have acquired an unsavory reputation. In the end, this podcast does not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but it is also not looking to completely villainize them. Instead, I hope this can be a conversation starter on the complicated legacies prescribed to women in history. In today's episode, I will analyze Barbara Palmer, King Charles II's official mistress. Discussing Barbara's life and legacy with me today will be best-selling author and historian Dr. Linda Porter, who mainly focuses on Tudor and Stuart England. Continue listening to learn more about this fascinating and much maligned woman from history. English writer John Evelyn called her the curse of the nation, while politician Sir John Raresby called her the finest woman of her age. By all accounts, Barbara Palmer was a stunning beauty, with dark hair, blue eyes, and a charismatic personality. She rose to fame as one of the numerous royal mistresses of King Charles II. Throughout her life and subsequent legacy, Barbara has elicited both revulsion and admiration. She was a woman born into an aristocratic but impoverished family who managed to climb to one of the most powerful positions at England's Restoration Court. Her legacy is complicated by the scandalous role she played as a royal mistress, but her wit and familial loyalty ensured that her relatives and children reaped the benefit of her role for generations. Born Barbara Villiers on the 27th of November, 1640, Barbara was born into a world of wealth and privilege. However, her early years were overshadowed by the upheavals of the English Civil War, a struggle between the Royalists, supporters of King Charles I and his heirs, and the Parliamentarians, supporters of Oliver Cromwell and a democratically elected government. Here is historian Linda Porter discussing Barbara's parentage and early years. Her mother was widowed at the age of 18 when Barbara was three. Her mother Mary had given birth at the age of 15. I mean, nowadays people get terribly, terribly, especially women, interestingly enough, incensed and up about this. Um, as, uh, but it, it was a, a reality of life at the time and it hadn't changed much from Tudor times. Uh, I mean, the, the difference between 14-year-old Elizabeth Tudor, if you consider the the um, scandal with Thomas Seymour and the 15-year-old Mary who became Viscountess Grandison is, is just a year. Um, and of course, then Ma- Mary gave birth fairly quickly as well. Uh, and her, her husband was a, a staunch royalist. I mean, Mary herself came from a, a mercantile background. It, 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 she she was an attractive prospect. I mean, she was actually, I think, quite an attractive young woman, but also she had pots, pots of money, um, which, which to um, an aristocracy that wasn't necessarily all that wealthy, and I don't know that the, the Grandisons were 
distantly connected to the, the Villas family, of course. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they had an awful lot of money. Uh, so uh, th this was a rather splendid match for, for young Viscount Grandison. It seems to have been a very happy one for its its brief uh, uh, length of time. Uh, but he joined the Royalists at Oxford in 1643 uh, and, and served with distinction under Prince Rupert. But he was wounded at the disastrous... Um, uh, siege of, of Bristol uh, and uh, though not fatally wounded at the time if I recall correctly he was wounded in the leg and he was taken back to Oxford um, where he died of gangrene uh, which well into the first World war of course was still killing people quite readily uh, so this left Mary by Countess Grandison as a widow with with little Barbara in tow and of course she didn't even have there wasn't even a male heir so the title passed to a more distant cousin on the husband's side uh, and eventually Mary Grandison remarried um, again to a, a distant cousin on her her uh, her husband's side. I'm always amazed by just how many people there are in these families and how, you know, if you can't get along with one or one dies, then there's probably someone else lurking in the background who will make you a reasonable spouse and a reasonable offer. And indeed, that's what happened to Mary Grandison. Uh, so she and her daughter, um, having gone through straightened times, I mean, her, her Mary Grandison's estates were in East Anglia. Now, the interesting thing I think about them uh, as a family is that they did not leave to join the, ex the Royalist exiles. They remained staunchly Royalists, but like uh, more, more families than I think most people realise, they stayed throughout the Commonwealth and Protectorate. Um, they, they didn't have access to their lands. They were sequestrated, which meant that the... Um, the, the government had use of them and took all the rents and taxes and everything from them. So they were not terribly well off financially. I presume that Mary's second husband had got access to some funds of his own. But anyhow, they stayed and they stayed in London. And Barbara was brought up there. Uh, and by the time of the late 1650s, she was growing into womanhood uh, and was already a considerable beauty, uh, which was remarked upon. Uh, and again, in, in I think an aspect of, of the um, English Republic, which is not at all understood by most people, it, it was not nearly such a dour time of people singing, sitting around reading hymns and, and saying prayers as people supposed. And uh, the, the royalists who remained in London, as indeed, many of the parliamentarian um, supporters as well, and even Cromwellian supporters, um, did not lead such a dour life, a uh, dour life as is often supposed. Um, there were private theatricals, music was quite important. And these young royalist ladies obviously had um, circles of their own, and they met uh, and um, giggled a lot and pursued um, attractive young men, um, one of whom was Barbara's first lover, the young Earl of Chesterfield. He was um, a young widower himself at that time, because of course women died so often in childbirth. And at this stage, of course, you're, if you were a royalist or a parliamentarian lady, your husband stood a fair chance of being killed in battle at some point in time. So it, there was quite a high changeover on the marital front. Um, no need for divorce, since you could probably find someone else if you waited long enough. So uh, this, this royalist-leaning family 
are living in London in rented accommodation through throughout the time of the, the 1650s, but they're not necessarily leading um, a gloomy or, or um, sort of repressed life. By the age of 18, Barbara had grown into a stunning young woman, attracting the attention of numerous aristocratic young men. At 15, Barbara had begun an affair with the Earl of Chesterfield. Once the affair had ended, Barbara married Roger Palmer at 18 a devout Catholic and a staunch royalist. Roger Palmer's family was against the match, with his father allegedly predicting that Barbara would make Roger one of the most miserable men in the world. Linda unpacks Barbara's early love life and subsequent marriage. Uh, we don't quite know how, but Barbara became involved with the Earl of Chesterfield, who had many mistresses. She was only one of them. She does seem to have been in so far as Barbara was perhaps capable of any real depth of affection at all, uh, she does seem to have been genuinely very taken with this man. I mean, he was a little bit older than her. She was 16, he was in his early 20s. And I suppose like most teenage girls at the time, if you know that you, your lover is, is also pursuing and being pursued by other women, this kind of um, concentrates your mind. Um, and uh, undoubtedly they did meet. She sent him a, a, a lot of love letters. He responded in a, in a flowery, quite often, because he was a good writer, but but reading between the lines of what he said to her, you can tell that you, you know she is one of several um, and he'll say all the right things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to, and going to be true to her forever. And certainly never, it seems to have seriously considered marrying her at all because she, she didn't have very much to offer at that stage, of course, except herself. Um, and uh, towards the end of the 1650s, she met Roger Palmer, who was the son of a, uh, a family who were Protestant, but he actually converted back to, to Catholicism. Uh, and he was a, a rather serious but, but well-connected young man, um, uh, quite good-looking, actually, in, in his portraits. Um, uh, and certainly, well, it depends on taste. I would personally have found him more handsome than Charles II, but then he wasn't a king, of course, either, so that may have made a difference. So Barbara married him in the late 1650s um, with no obvious intention of, of remaining faithful. Um, he knew that his young wife was thought to be attractive and, and desirable. Uh, he tried to keep her away from London. Um, she wrote to Chesterfield saying, oh, don't worry about the monsieur, as she called him. Barbara couldn't spell like most people at the time. So it comes out as Mouncer, M-O-U-N-S-E-R, which sounds a bit like Mouser, but uh, it was what she met, meant. And, and of course, it, it also suggests something as an aside about her background in education that she she had she was undoubtedly literate and that she had been taught the basics of French even if she wasn't very good at it uh, but uh, so almost as soon as she was married she was um, trying to plan you know running away perhaps with with Chesterfield certainly being unfaithful he was sort of sitting up in his seat in the English Midlands sort of vicariously patting her on the head yes very nice dear but you know nothing actually happened uh, and I think poor Roger Palmer realized early on that, that, that this marriage had been a mistake it was not one his father wanted him to undertake they had very little in common 
Um, but she wanted his money and his veneer of, well, his respectability. He had more than a veneer of respectability. Um, he was a very serious and sober young man. Um, an excellent linguist, incidentally, and very committed to his his Catholic faith. Uh, uh, and as, you know, his, his, his sort of personal integrity was completely at odds with his, his young wife. Um, Barbara can be um, said to have had many things and not to have had many others, and one of the things she undoubtedly didn't have was any degree of integrity. Later, in 1659, when the parliamentarian government, titled the Protectorate, was overthrown and Charles II was named King of England, Barbara and her husband set sail for the exiled court in the Netherlands to accompany Charles II back to England. Accounts differ on the date and circumstances surrounding the beginning of an affair between Charles II and Barbara. As Linda points out, There is the, the suggestion, which has never been proved, and I think most people nowadays don't think that she, she met Charles II in the sort of last year or so of his exile in um, the Netherlands. Um, it had been thought that maybe she was used, as some royalist women were, uh, as um, not exactly a spy, but certainly a messenger who could pass to and fro across the North Sea uh, without attracting undue attention. A bit odd in Barbara's case, I would have thought, since she was the sort of young woman who attracted attention, <laughs> merely probably yeah. by setting foot on a boat, I would have thought. But uh, anyhow, um, we don't know when she met Charles II. Uh, the general feeling now amongst Stuart historians is that it must have been very soon after his restoration at the end of May uh, 1660, because she's talked about by peeps uh, as being a lady that the king and his brothers visited within a couple of months of that. Uh, and certainly, uh, I mean, within a number of months, she was pregnant um, with a child that she initially passed off as, as her husband's. And I, Roger, I think, sadly, desperately wanted to believe that the girl Anne was his. But it, it, the, the likelihood, if not absolute certainty, is, is that she was Charles II. While the beginning of Barbara's affair with the King of England is uncertain, by the summer of 1660, Barbara was living in a house opposite Whitehall Palace and received regular visits from the King. Members of the court speculated on Barbara's relationship with Charles II, but the role of the royal mistress, which Barbara was most likely considered by early 1661 with the birth of her first child, was not well defined in the English court. Here's Linda. In fact, it was a far more ill-defined role than, say, the role of the maîtresse en titre in, in France. And it, it, it might be argued, I think, that both Barbara Palmer and later on Louise de Carouel, who became Duchess of Portsmouth, uh, the French woman, were both sort of de facto um, uh, chief mistresses, but they, they weren't there was no if official role. Uh, and I th think perhaps one of the people who'd put paid to that in the previous century was Anne Boleyn in insisting on, on marrying Henry VIII. But it, it wasn't part of the, um, uh, well, the, either the, the English or, or the Scottish tradition. It, it didn't really exist. Of course, kings had mistresses, uh, and this was well known. 
and to a varying degree tolerated by the Queen Consort at the time. Um, some were positively relieved, I should think, that they didn't have to perform marital duties with their husbands. Others didn't see it in quite that, that way. Um, but there would have been a range of reactions. But the uh, by the 17th century, and I think particularly after the Civil Wars, um, which had in their own way actually improved the position of women, um, perhaps not dramatically. I mean, there, there was, I suppose, under the Restoration, a bit more of return to the patriarchal view. Uh, but women had played a crucial part in both the royalist and the, um, uh, the parliamentarian side in the Civil War. Uh, and basically, they weren't going back. Uh, and one of the women who was definitely not going back was, was Barbara Palmer. The decade of the 1660s saw the height of Barbara's position at court and influence over Charles II. While her title of royal mistress was not as well defined as it would have been in the French court, Barbara took advantage of the opportunities presented to her. Linda discusses Barbara's early influence on Charles II's court in England. Why was Charles attracted to her? Well, many men were. I mean, she had, she was a sort of luscious woman, I think, uh, with a very strong personality, you know, a, a great mass of auburn hair. Um, uh, and um, it really quite marked good looks to, to go with it. Uh, and certainly no shrinking violet, uh, either when it came to her own personality or certainly to her own sexuality. And she must have realised early on that in, in Charles II she was on to a good thing, basically. Uh, their their uh, relationship was incredibly tempestuous because Barbara had a huge temper uh, and was always arguing and flying off the handle uh, and sort of seeing difficulties and insults when they didn't exist. Uh, and uh, But during the decade of the 1660s, she dominated both Charles II and the English court. And his poor wife, Catherine of Braganza, whom he married in 1662, was forced to take this, um, this woman uh, as... Uh, a, mem a lady of her own bedchamber, though I don't think there's much indication that, that Barbara did a great deal except take the money that came with the role. Uh, I think she accompanied Catherine on some occasions, but um, Catherine certainly detested her. And Charles foisted Barbara on his wife uh, and treated her really quite appallingly over it because uh, for a woman who's often represented as a weepy dope, Catherine of Braganza, there was a lot more to her than most people realise. And she did try and stand out against her husband. And he merely said, you know, if you're going to do this, I'll humiliate you in public, I'll ignore you, um, and I'll uh, not forget anyone who sides with you. Uh, and so Catherine of Braganza had to retreat. Uh, I think Barbara probably had sufficient sense to stay out of the way, at least, you know, when it suited her to do so. Uh, but she was officially um, one of Catherine's ladies, although in theory, a queen consort should be allowed to, to appoint her own ladies of the bedchamber and her maids of honour. Uh, in practice, the appointments normally had to be okayed by the monarch anyhow, because the, the queen um, didn't have a separate sort of financial uh, 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 source for, for doing that sort of thing but it was normally considered the Queen's um, uh, responsibility and, and one of her privileges to, to appoint her own ladies and Catherine had obviously brought ladies with her from Portugal I mean everyone laughed at them because their fashions were not English 
Um, and, and they were Mediterranean looking. In other words, they were sort of olive skin. I mean, they would be considered supremely attractive nowadays. But in, the, in England at the time, um, they were thought to be ugly and old fashioned and everything. And I, I mean, it was really an appalling start for Catherine of Braganza's marriage, um, which never really recovered from it. Uh, it might to some degree if she'd had children, but she was unable to have children. which was, She had several pregnancies, and had a gynecological condition, which um, is now thought to have prevented her essentially from carrying children to term. Barbara, meanwhile, on the other hand, could drop babies, you know, one a year, no problem, within, um, I think in some cases, a matter of days, certainly just a matter of a few weeks. I mean, none of this skulking in public, in private and, and waiting for the confinement to be over and then the appointed time before a lady appeared. Within a couple of weeks, Barbara was right back at court. Um, her figure apparently, you know, undiminished by having uh, eventually half a dozen or so children. Barbara and Charles II's fiery tempers created a tempestuous relationship throughout the 1660s but did not diminish Barbara's hold over the king. By 1672, Barbara had given birth to six children, all of which Charles II recognized. Barbara's maternal role was dominated by the fight to have her children recognized and ennobled by the king, and to ensure a bright future for each of them. Within Barbara's story, this is perhaps where she succeeded the most. As Linda points out, As the 1660s progressed, Despite all the rows uh, and the infidelities on both sides, because Charles had other mistresses, though, though none as well known or as important as, as, as Barbara during that time. During that time, she had, I'm trying to remember, it's five or six, I think it's six children, right? Two, at least two girls and three or four boys with Charles. Uh, and while not a, an affectionate mama in, in the sort of Victorian or modern sense, um, she was determined that they would get their due uh, and all have titles. And uh, when the king disputed um, the parentage, perhaps, of, of one of her younger sons with him, uh, she threatened to dash the boy's brains out against the mantelpiece, which uh, probably doesn't suggest a woman who was um, a terribly fond mother. I mean, it, it, it might have been a dramatic gesture and I don't think she would have done it. What she didn't want was for her children to be ignored and disadvantaged because they were illegitimate. I mean, you might argue that she should have thought of that sooner. <laughs> but I, I think her, her, her fecundity, you know, this was a woman who just had children with no problems whatsoever at a time uh, when women still frequently died in childbirth. And um, many queens consort, not just Catherine of Braganza, but others throughout Europe, had the most appalling difficulty in giving birth to even, you know, in some cases, one child that would survive. So it is rather extraordinary that this, this, this sort of um, outrageous lady should be able to have conceived so readily and never seem to show the slightest ill effects afterwards. She was absolutely committed that all of her children should have titles. Oh, and in the case of the girls, make good marriages to someone with a title. Um, Charles was an extremely indulgent parent. Um, he, he had, depending on whether you do actually believe that Barbara's last child, who was named after her, was fathered by Charles II, or as I think most people feel now, um, John Churchill, the future Duke of Marlborough. Um, but, 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 you know, he'd, he'd had all these children. Um, he did 
to some degree take responsibility for them. I mean, amongst the women he knew who were perhaps not of the same sort of birth and breeding as the ladies of the court, there may even have been illegitimate children that he and we know nothing about. Um, but, but certainly um, he had the majority of his children, in fact, with Barbara Palmer. And I think it is true that most of the current um, English aristocracy, as opposed to the Scottish aristocracy, are descended from them. Uh, you know, the, the, the titles lived on and passed down. Yes, uh, many of uh, both, for example, David Cameron, our former prime minister and his wife, were both descended from um, Charles II and Barbara Palmer. So uh, it, they're not aristocrats, incidentally, but, you know, they're, they're uh, from the upper echelons of society. And, and certainly um, most of the, the, the title, uh, the, the leading aristocratic families uh, are connected with Charles and Barbara Palmer. So they've, they've had a very... Um, uh, they've had a very uh, long line of success, um, perhaps one which couldn't have been entirely foreseen. In 1662, a year after giving birth to her first son, Roger Palmer decided to leave England and never saw Barbara again. They would remain married, but separated by the English Channel until Roger's death in 1705. During the 1660s, Barbara ensured that her image would be preserved for generations to come. She was a great patron of the arts, especially painting, having numerous portraits done during her time as royal mistress. This has left us with a number of portrayals of this infamous woman, and also a glimpse at the woman behind the role. Here's Linda. I mean, she was a woman who aroused strong passions. Uh, she was not the sort of person that you could sort of quite like and avoid. Um, she was unavoidable and in your face. And uh, she had, of course, because of her connection to the king, a considerable amount of, of patronage at her disposal, particularly of artists. And she adored and was adored by, though I think in a purely platonic sense in this particular case, uh, the court painter Peter Lilly, um, who, who was originally from the Netherlands, as were many um, of, of uh, the court painters in both Tudor and, and Stuart England. Um, and he found her an absolute delight you know some of the paintings of her which appear you know bordering on blasphemous to us nowadays there's um i suppose my favorite is the one of uh, of barbara dressed as um uh, the virgin mary and with her eldest illegitimate son beside her you know supposedly almost as the young jesus christ uh, and barbara posed quite blatantly for these she had posed in another as mary magdalene um, who, who, you know, I suppose the fallen woman image is not inappropriate there, but, uh, you know, she was the kind of woman who who radiated that sort of force of nature, uh, and and she was very beautiful. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and and Lily found her uh, a gorgeous subject for, for, his, for his paintings. But I think they still have as much power to re repel as attract, actually, because of the, the way... That she presents her, herself in them, but she she didn't care. She 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 simply didn't care. By the end of the 1660s, Barbara's power began to wane. Charles, never a faithful lover, became infatuated first with Frances Theresa Stuart, then Louise de Carroll, and finally with the infamous Nell Gwynne. 
Surprisingly, the fiery Barbara seemed to accept her loss of power. The end of Barbara's star power at court did not elicit much outcry. While a popular patron of the arts, Barbara did not have many allies at court. Linda delves into the waning years of Barbara's influence over Charles II. She was a great patron of the arts. She was smothered in jewellery which Charles gave her. Um, so she, she cut a very um, stunning figure, really, on the, on the, um, at the Restoration Court. Not popular. She wasn't a woman who had a lot of friends. Um, the women of her own family seem to have, especially the older ones, seem to have felt some sort of slight responsibility for her, but, but perhaps not, not a great deal. Uh, and she uh, she did try when she realised that Charles II was probably becoming enamoured of the the uh, little Francis Theresa Stuart who'd um, grown up in France in the French court. Um, she tried to sort of get her on side. Um, though I think in some respects Francis Theresa was ultimately more clever than than Barbara because she managed actually to avoid, as far as we know, having sex with the king and eventually eloped with his cousin, the Duke of Richmond, and became, you know, quite a considerable lady of property in her own right. Um, hers is also a very dramatic story, but I won't enlarge on that anymore here because we're supposed to be talking about Barbara. So Barbara was conscious of rivals, but not terribly bothered by them. But, of course, by about 1669, coincidentally at the time that Charles and Catherine of Braganza had given up on the idea that she, she would ever carry a pregnancy to term. And she began to forge a, a separate life and existence of, of her own very successfully. Charles seems finally to have tired of uh, Barbara. He met Nell Gwynne by that stage and was also involved with the other actress, Mel Dav Mol, Mol Davis. Uh, and Barbara had had liaisons with various actors and, and um, other people of the court. Uh, she tried very hard to be a political player, not always with success. And eventually when she saw that her hold over Charles was waning, that, that things were changing, um, in, in 1670 the Frenchwoman um, Louise de Carroal arrived in England after the death of her, her own, she'd served in, in, in the um, household of the Duchess of Orléans, who was Charles's sister, Minette. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, certainly uh, Louise came over after that. Um, it's often suggested that Charles asked for her specifically, but I don't think there was any real evidence for that at the time. She wasn't the only member of Louise's household to, to come over. Other ladies did as well. Uh, and certainly Louise wasn't keen on falling into Charles's bed at the time. Um, she was a virgin, um, uh, whereas Barbara certainly wasn't. <laughs> uh, so, so there was quite a difference. And, and Louise, although she became the king's mistress, was a very rather prim and proper lady, you know, and this was... Uh, she didn't think that she was a bad woman and she managed to to make peace with her own conscience but by the early 1670s she'd realized that the relationship had run its nat natural course with charles ii um and that his he really was going to stray elsewhere permanently and she took herself off to paris for a while with her little daughter barbara uh, and uh, there caused a fair amount of trouble as she as she often did in in different places by um uh, 
you know, trying to undermine other people uh, and, and eventually falling out with Charles's ambassador there, um, which perhaps was not the cleverest thing to do, but, but she did. And she returned after a while. Um, she still saw the king from time to time. Um, she perhaps became on, on friendlier terms with some of his other mistresses later on. Uh, friendly might be the wrong word, but, but tolerable perhaps <laughs> might be more like it. Um, yeah. she, uh, she never accepted Nell Gwynne, whom she described as a pathetic strolling player. Um, but she was forced to um, uh, accept the role of Louise de Carreau, who had essentially, you know, if you're going to think of two, the equivalence of two maîtresses en titre during Charles II's reign, then despite all the other women, um, they are Barbara Palmer and Louise de Carreau. And of course, Barbara outlived Charles II by a good many years. Um, in the early 18th century, after her husband finally died, um, poor Roger, um, he'd become involved, um, it, it, well, he'd come back to England under James II, who was a Catholic king, of course, and then um, when James was, was forced to abdicate, he, Roger took up the Jacobite cause and was viewed as, as an enemy and spent a while in the Tower of London, actually. Um, but uh, when he died, his wife was finally free. She was, of course, not exactly young anymore at that time. After Charles II's death in 1685, Barbara's life became no less scandalous. In 1705, after her own husband's death, Barbara remarried to a man named Beau Fielding, a man of dubious background. Here's Linda on Barbara's second marriage. She took up with a reprobate ne'er-do-well. Uh, I think, you know, being this sort of person, Barbara seems to have been attracted to these kind of men as well, called Beau Fielding, who was actually a bigamist. Uh, and when she married him, she didn't know that he was married to someone else. Um, and uh, eventually her granddaughter moved in to share their accommodation uh, and started an affair with this final husband, her, well, her second husband, um, which must have made for a very difficult menage à trois, I would think. Uh, Barbara tried to get rid of Fielding, who sort of threatened her with a gun, and there was a big sort of public um, scandal about this. And, and she went through um, proceedings against him, you know, in court, um, which dragged her own name into the mire again, really, after so many years. Um, but eventually she died quietly <laughs> um, in the reign of Queen Anne, um, probably not much lamented, um, but uh, ha having lived really a quite extraordinarily, extraordinary life. Barbara Palmer died in 1709 at the age of 68 and was soon subsumed into the wider narrative of Charles II's court. Barbara's legacy, when remembered, has rarely been a favorable one. Even during her own life, she was described as greedy, manipulative, cruel, and arrogant. Writer Samuel Pepys wrote that Barbara rules him, the king, who he says hath all the tricks of Ariton that are to be practiced to give pleasure. A satirical ballad about Barbara stated, If I had such a bitch, I would spay her. Barbara's subsequent legacy is often overshadowed by another of Charles II's mistresses, Nell Gwynne. However, Linda argues that while Nell Gwynne may be immortalized in the public memory, Barbara succeeded more than Nell during her own lifetime. 
in in the sort of general rank of things i mean barbara was obviously more successful as a mistress uh, and certainly outlived Nell died just two years after Charles, in fact, uh, whereas Barbara went on and on into the, into the next century. Um, so I think she is quite an extraordinary woman. She is very hard to like. I mean, you can you could write, I mean, people have done in the past, biographies of her, um, which tell you a good deal about her life and background. Um, but precisely why she she behaved the way we she did we we don't really know um and i i find her tremendously interesting to write about but not at all a, a likable woman Barbara Palmer is a hard woman to pin down. In one way, she can be celebrated as a feminist icon. Born into a world where women had little to no personal autonomy or power. But Barbara used the tools provided to her to forge her own destiny. On the other hand, her own actions make it difficult for later generations to create a modern heroine. Linda argues that while she may be difficult to like at times, Barbara should be celebrated for what she achieved through sheer grit and determination. I think for being her, her own woman as much as she could, and when she could not, knowing how to use her, um, her skills uh, and her undoubted beauty um, to get what she wanted from men. Because, uh, I mean, at the time, women could only deal with society as they found it um they might want might have wanted to change it more um but within i think barbara having had a very um sort of challenging upbringing and lived in considerable poverty by the standards of her class at the time um made a great success of her life it, it her manner of her doing it may seem distasteful to to, to some people um, but well, I didn't know that we're so judgmental now as we used to, as perhaps we used to be. Um, but she was very much a, a woman who made the best of the advantages that nature had given her uh, and knew how to um, make a success of the prospects that came her way when Charles's eye fell on her shortly after the restoration. Whether she knew something of his reputation in the Netherlands I don't think we know. Um, I mean, it's not clear. It's never been clear to me just how much people in in England actually knew um, in Britain, I should say, at the time. I mean, the, the Cromwellian government had gone out of its way to um, uh, make sure that that Charles's peccadilloes were well known. Um, uh, and Lucy Walter didn't help that because she came to London, was promptly arrested as a spy and, and shut up in the tower for a while. Uh, I mean, certainly his liaison with some women was, uh, particularly Lucy, was viewed as a sign that he was simply unfit to ever, you know, recover his throne, even if there should be such a possibility. Uh, and how much Barbara knew of his attraction to women um, uh, we simply don't know, but it, since it was something he never hid, it must have been fairly obvious on their first meeting, I should think. So she, she, um, she played a clever hand. It was rather a good hand. Uh, I mean, had she been 
short and stumpy, um, then clearly she might have had to find some other route to success. Um, she certainly uh, made the best of, of, of what she had and this, you know, magnificent figure and towering personality. So, you know, hats off to her, really, I would say. In the end, Linda puts it best by bringing the narrative back to Barbara herself and what Linda believes Barbara would feel about her complicated historical legacy today. I think Barbara would have happily told almost anybody, if you like, to hear that she was a bad woman. She wouldn't have been ashamed of it at all. Um, bad women, wicked women, if you like, like her, got jewels. They got um, titles for their children. They got property. Um, uh, Barbara was given uh, quite a lot of property, both in the sort of Windsor Great Park area and... Um, uh, in, in other parts of West London. And so she wasn't poor. And I think if you, as I just said, if you if you put her on the spot and said, you know, would you rather be viewed as, viewed as a wicked woman than a good woman? I think she would have said that she'd rather be thought of as wicked because it was more colourful and interesting. Mm -hmm.